Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Clay Jenkinson is once again joined by Professor Joseph Ellis, and we spent a great deal of time this week talking about voting rights and voting safety during Jefferson's time and ours. At a time when laws that appear to be voter suppression legislation are being introduced around the country, the question is how does that fit into the larger trajectory of American elections? Have they always been turbulent? Have we always suppressed certain parts of the electorate? Or are we headed towards a a breathtakingly better future? But as usual, Professor Joseph Ellis is full of thoughts about books he's written, books he's now writing, books he still intends to write, and a, a lifetime of thinking about the founding generation, not always in praise of Jefferson, but always fascinated by the third president of the United States. Join us for all of that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, a topic of discussion between both political parties is voters' rights. There are those who think that rights of voters should be very restrictive to ensure that they're fair. And there are those who think that any restriction on voting rights is something that is counter to the values of our democratic system. What say you, Mr. Jefferson? Well, I lived in a different time in a different place, so I may disappoint you in my response. In my day, I was the advocate of the most widespread voting rights for white men of a certain property base. In fact, I even suggested universal white manhood suffrage, which would have been the first time in human history that all white men of a community were enabled to vote. But I did not contemplate women voting. I didn't believe that American Indians should vote. And I didn't believe that African Americans, that black people should vote. And so by your standards, that's a pretty pitiful record. But in my time, I was regarded as sort of dangerously progressive in wanting all white men to have the capacity to vote. In most places, it was thought that only men of significant property had a sufficient stake in the community to be um, entrusted with something like voting. So it was a a very different time, and I'm sure I would have grown with the country, but I wasn't um, anywhere near your own sense of universal suffrage in my own time. Mr. Jefferson, during my time, the phrase that you hear most often is free and fair elections. What kind of safeguards were in place to assure an honest count of votes during your time? Well, there weren't really any good safeguards. We had to count on the character of the county officials or the local officials who who gathered the votes and, and counted them. There was observation by outsiders, of course, to try to keep things honest, but If you went to the election of 1800 or the election of 1804, or even back when I stood for the presidency in 1796, by your standards, you would see a very wide discrepancy in the way that votes were counted in different states or even within different localities in those states. And there was a great deal of irregularity. There was drunkenness. These often essentially were street fairs. And there was a sense in which the aggression could play a role like a state fair or a county fair where there was also voting going on, hogs being roasted and there were 
people protesting this or that, selling and hawking wares, people flirting and having assignations, horse races, a whole range of things, and then voting too. And the voting was not by secret ballot in my time, it was by uh, public ballot. And there was a great deal of uh, potential, at least, for intimidation. One of the things that, that James Madison tried to do in Virginia was to canvass his own candidacy for office without supplying uh, alcohol. And what he discovered was that the people were not willing to vote for him if he didn't provide alcohol. So he had to change his approach in subsequent election cycles. Mr. Jefferson, I grew up in my time in America believing that uh, fair elections, free elections, the right of every citizen to vote is the bedrock upon which our democracy is built. Am I naive? Am I wrong, sir? No, even with the differences in the social structure between my time and yours, I think there's a commonality. In other words, you have to start by deciding who is an elector, who's a citizen. Um, In your time, you've decided that everyone who is 18 years old or older, uh, who is a bona fide citizen of the United States, can can vote. Uh, That would not have been the case in my time. But once you've decided that, then uh, you must make sure that every one of those people actually can vote. Uh, Now, if you decide that women are not part of the electorate, um, that does not necessarily create corruption. Um, Every society decides who is an elector and who is not. But every uh, legitimate elector, every legitimate voting citizen should never be prevented from voting. And if they are, uh, that's clearly a form of corruption. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This conversation this week is with one of our favorite guests, Mr. Joseph Ellis, and also the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And I welcome both of you gentlemen to this week's conversation. Good to hear your voices. Pleasure to be with you. Always glad to have the returning champion. Joy, as you know, Clay has just returned from Montana, amazingly enough, intact. But, you know, it kind of brought to mind Jefferson. He had this great fascination with the West, mm. but I don't think he ever went very far west. He was he was kind of kind of a homebody, liked to stay at home, and I could relate to that. <laughs> I thought it, he never got as far further west than the uh, natural bridge in the Shenandoah Mountains, but Clay corrected me at some point and said he's slightly out there. At, what that springs he used to go to? Warm springs. He went uh, late in life, Joe, and he went because he was having health problems, and he took the mineral baths there, and he got some sort of a terrible skin disease where he was you know, really shedding portions of his skin, and he said it broke his health, and 
it, it confirmed his skepticism about spas. Huh. I think Washington took his daughter, who had, oh, God, what's the disease? Um, and uh, there, and it didn't, obviously, didn't do much good for her, but he got some special sacred stone or something there that he carried with her. He made her carry it as a protection. It didn't work much. She died young. Um, and let me ask you a, a question on the on the West thing. You know, nobody did as much to expand the Western borders of the United States than Thomas Jefferson with the Louisiana Purchase. And in work I was doing on a recent book, I, I was encountering the comments in the Continental Congress speculation about what was out there and how much land there was, because it was going to be a huge trust fund because of the revenue that could be gained by the sale of that. One of the reasons you don't have to pay income taxes throughout the 19th century is they've got this source of revenue. But they talked about there might be dinosaurs out there. And did Jefferson think that? It is a pre-Darwinian age, but did he think you might discover, you know, Tyrannosaurus rex or something out there? Yes and no. So it was a pre-Darwinian age. Jefferson believed in something called the great chain of being, which was an ancient view going back to Plato or beyond, which argued that every species occupies a specific link in a grand chain that, that goes from mollusks and mice on the bottom all the way up through moose and so on, and finally up to humankind. And humankind were the top link in the chain, and every lower chain was less sophisticated and less conscious and so on. This was a very grand idea that believed that everything was interrelated to everything else and that God had designed this all by himself and had implanted it within those first seven days and that it was unalterable because on the, on the analogy that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, if something became extinct, then that might jeopardize the whole system. And Jefferson believed that God would have been a pitiful creator if he had designed the world of animals and only to snuff them out at some point. And so there were no dinosaurs at the time, Joe, but here's what's interesting. There was the mammoth and the mastodon, and the early digs had occurred in Siberia and at a place called Big Bone Lick in Kentucky, and and uh, uh, there was one... Doesn't one uh, Charles Wilson Peel have a portrait of unearthing the mastodon that's done about that time? But I think it's done somewhere in, like, upstate New York. It's in the Hudson River Valley, and, uh, yeah. and, he, and yeah. there's a great painting of it, and I recently featured it on the cover of the Lewis and Clark Journal we proceeded on, but... Peel actually uh, wrote to Jefferson saying, maybe I could borrow a Navy pump to help clear the water from that, uh, that excavation, and Jefferson was going to provide it, but then Peel wrote and said, I don't need it, and so that protected Jefferson from potential conflict of interest in using a Navy pump on this uh, scientific uh, expedition. But anyway, all this was going on. So Jefferson was utterly fascinated. There are Mastodon bones at, at Monticello. He had... Well, Clark of Lewis and Clark and Lewis uh, digging up Mastodon bones at Big Bone Lick in Kentucky. And Jefferson was as fascinated by that as a nine-year-old boy or girl today is fascinated <laughs> by Tyrannosaurus rex. But, Joe, the Lewis and Clark saw evidence of dinosaurs in today's South Dakota, but they just regarded it as a vast fish because Cuvier, the great French scientist Cuvier, had just about, but not yet, identified dinosaurs. So the 1809 is usually the date that is given to when dinosaurs kind of popped 
into the world's consciousness. Cuvier um, invented the word, um, means a terrible lizard, a dinosaur, and then everything that has followed, we all know from Jurassic Park and our own fascination with these creatures. But Jefferson could not have named a Tyrannosaurus rex or a Triceratops or anything else. They were just. They were they used like mastodon, right? Right. That's what they were. That's what that that was their dinosaur, and they were every bit as fascinated, or at least Jefferson was, as we tend to be with these great creatures. By the way, Joe, if you ever do come west. Um, I can take you to the Dinosaur Alley in southwestern North Dakota where they've been pulling really extraordinary Triceratops uh, fossils out of the ground. And, and by the way, Joe, on this trip that I just did on the Lewis and Clark Trail, you have many, many, many fans out there now. Um, you know, they already, <laughs> from the, And they said, they said this, is there any chance that Joe Ellis would ever come on one of these journeys. And I said, none, none whatsoever. Invite me, invite me and pay my way. And I'll, I'll, come. I'll do that. Of course. Can I bring my fly rod? Sure. You can catch a catfish with it. <laughs> if, if I can bring my fly rod, I'll come. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. We got a question from a listener, Jeff Fazio, and he writes, you've spoken of the elections between Adams and Jefferson. How were the elections of 1800 conducted in localities, what safeguards were in place to ensure an honest count of votes? Mm. There were no safeguards. There were no safeguards. The safeguard was human character. So the one instance I know best is that after the votes were counted in New York, it became clear that the Jeffersonians had won thanks to the political genius of Aaron Burr, and Hamilton wrote a letter to Governor John Jay saying, well, it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be really in our interest to be too scrupulous about such things. Let's change the system ex post facto here so that we can redo this count and make sure that Adams and the Federalists win. And John Jay, who was no friend of the Jeffersonians, but he was a great man, wrote in the margins, I did not think that I should reply to this letter. So Hamilton was willing to overturn the election to uh, change the rules after the fact, to diselect Jefferson and to elect Adams, whom he didn't like either, uh, because he thought he could get away with it. And it took a human, it took a character like John Jay, as it in our time has taken election officials in Georgia and in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and in Arizona to say no, much though we would prefer the incumbent to have won the 2020 election, we refuse to participate in a, in a gross violation of the voting systems of our states. And so, Joe, I think you will agree there are other instances from 1800, but it takes character, not just law, to do this right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there have been several elections across the centuries that the loser could have contested. The one that comes to mind is the Nixon election against John Kennedy in 1960, because it's pretty clear that uh, in Illinois, uh, Mayor Daley voted the graveyard, and that was a key state. And it was a very close election, and he could have challenged it, and he chose not to. But back to the period where I supposedly know something, I think <laughs> you're right, Clay. There were no set of federal laws or instructions. They were state laws, and they varied from state to state. Adams won the election of 1796 in a very close vote. It's pretty sectional. New England went for Adams. The South went for Jefferson, and the middle states split, but split slightly for Adams. In that election, I believe, New York's votes didn't count. They couldn't get their act together. There were fights within the New York legislature. But in the election of 1800, 
they had 12 electoral votes. Prior to the election in the spring, before the election, Burr visited Monticello. Nobody knows what they said. Burr then spent $50,000 purchasing, well, affecting the election of the state Senate in New York so that the people elected were Jeffersonians uh, more than they would have been otherwise. And all 12 electoral votes from New York went for Jefferson. If it, they had gone the other way or even split, Adams would have won. At the time, Adams never protested because he didn't even know about it. And he and Abigail have some letters on this, but they're, they're simply saying that it was New York and that's the difference and there's nothing they can do about it. But I, I think that that was an election that was not completely honest. And um, many of the listeners to this broadcast are not going to be upset that Thomas Jefferson won. And he won the next election by a landslide. What, what I'm hearing is that there's precedent that there were elections that were perhaps not so up and up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying that. And virtually all elections, whether it's for dog catcher or for president of the United States, have some element of corruption or dishonesty uh, in any kind of democracy. The question that comes to my mind here with regard to the current situation is that would Jefferson himself be willing to support the kind of legislation that is being enacted in many of the Republican states now? And I think that my answer is one side of him says yes, and the other side says no. The side that says yes is the person who wrote the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they have rights and that in that sense, I think uh, you can imagine him supporting the Voting Rights Act of 1965. On the other hand, Jefferson did not believe that African Americans were equal to whites and did not support the notion of their, he didn't, he wanted them removed from the country, really, uh, after slavery. Nor were women. Nor women. Uh, when he was elected president, took office in 1801, his Secretary of Treasury, Albert Gallatin, came to him and said, there's some talk that we should name a woman to the cabinet. And Jefferson said, I do not believe the American people are ready for that, nor may I add, am I. And I believe one of the first people elected to the cabinet as a woman is Frances Perkins in 1933. Gentlemen, we need to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week we are joined by the author Joseph Ellis and Clay Jenkinson, the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson, and we took our break. Clay, I was asking about how Jefferson would have felt about voting rights, voting restrictions. Uh, What's your take? First of all, voting has been turbulent throughout American history. It's characterized by turbulence and uh, uh, the seeking of order and efficiency. But if you go back and look at the elections in the age of Andrew Jackson, or for that matter, in the age of Jefferson, they're much more casual than they are now. They were often uh, done in public squares. Alcohol was usually involved, sometimes fighting, shouting matches, pushing and shoving, chicanery of one sort or another. And so the idea that elections are always run efficiently and scientifically is a very recent sort of thing. And even now, as we know from the irregularities um, of the 2020 election, it's very difficult in a country that believes in states' rights and state authority in these matters to create a uniform national standard. And so if, if you want to see evidence of this, look at William Hogarth's prints from 18th century London of elections or read the story of elections in Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers, and you will see that turbulence is really the rule and efficiency is a very recent thing. That said, William Barr, the former Attorney General of the United States, did declare that the election of 2020 was amongst the most fair and scientifically handled in American history. Second thing I want to say is, and I mean this really strongly, how dare the Supreme Court of the United States strike down provisions of the 1965 civil rights laws or 1964 for that matter. That's an appalling thing. You know, this was one of the major pieces of legislation in the 20th century. It's a monument to the best of America. It took Lyndon Johnson's whole enormous charisma and personality to get that done. It would not have been done probably if it hadn't been in the wake of the martyrdom of John Kennedy. This is one of the pivotal moments in modern history and the Supreme Court had no reason, no right, and no argument to strike down provisions of the Voting Rights Act. It's an appalling and obscene decision and it shows that the courts have been politicized in a really dangerous way. The third thing I want to say is, and I mean mean not to quibble with you, David, but you talked about the importance of the civil rights law. Even more important are the people black and white, who marched in the South, who crossed those bridges, who went to Birmingham and other places, got themselves arrested, had dogs loosed upon them, who sacrificed their lives sometimes, certainly their security, to get this thing done. It would not have happened if it hadn't been for those marches. It was the American people seeing in grainy black and white Bull Connor of Alabama loosing dogs on black men and women and children and and white supporters of civil rights that led to the public outcry that even made John Kennedy, who was reluctant, get involved in the civil rights movement. And so this is very important. I would argue as an American historian that uh, Lyndon Johnson's decision to support and pass the Voting Rights Act was the greatest act of political leadership in the 20th century by the United States, because he knew when he did it that it would cost him, it would cost the Democratic Party. In fact, the Democratic senator from Georgia, uh, Richard Russell, said, Lyndon, you know, if we do this, the Democratic Party will lose the South for at least 20 years. And that was what happened. In fact, no Democratic candidate for president since the passage of the Civil Rights Voting Act has ever won a white majority. 
Jimmy Carter came closest in, with 48%. That was a real bold act, and he's acting on Jeffersonian principles. But Jeffersonian principles that Jefferson himself, I fear, could not live up to. I agree with that. I think Jefferson has to be seen for his principles, his vision, his aspirational rhetoric, rather than from his actual behavior. We know that he did not believe that we could create a biracial republic, and he would have been astonished to think that in the 21st century there was an African-American president, African-American senators, congressmen, judges, college professors, college presidents, astronauts, scientists, and everything else. I, I, I think of... Uh the right of citizens to vote and free and fair elections is kind of, that's the bottom line, the bedrock of democracy in America. And I'm hearing from both of you that uh, I might be a little naive in that. The United States didn't really become committed to a biracial American society until the middle of the 20th century. And the Voting Rights Act was the culmination of that. It began with uh, Truman's desegregation of the military and then Brown versus Board of Education, but then the Civil Rights Act of 64 and then the Voting Rights Act of 65. These are recent things, and we are trying to do something in America, creating a truly multiracial society. It has been um, characterized by lots of tension, including race tension. The point is, we can't give up. It's not over. Um, much of it oh. is yet well, to Martin come. Martin Luther King, I think he borrowed the phrase uh, from Theodore Parker, but the phrase is the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And I, and he used that in the, I have a dream speech. Um, and the historical pattern is an upward arc in terms of justice as Clay is describing, but it's not an even arc. It's more like a roller coaster. And the pattern is, Every significant step forward generates a backlash. After Reconstruction, you get Jim Crow. Uh, after the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, you get the Southern strategy of the Republicans, which takes makes the Republican base the old Confederacy. And after a Barack Obama, you get Donald Trump. And, um, and, and we're in a backlash moment now. And... Um, and in my own view, is that the efforts going on in states where the Republicans control the legislature to restrict voting, it's um, it's Jim Crow without the lynching. Um, and um, uh, I'm surprised at it. Um, it's pretty blatant. I suspect both of you are following some of the laws that are being proposed or enacted. Are they that serious, or is this just the press kind of ginning up the public and making us watch with alarm? They are serious, most especially in those states, and I think Georgia and Texas have both done this. I'm not sure about Arizona or Iowa, that the final decision about how to count votes will be not in the hands of the Secretary of State or the Attorney General in the state, but of the legislature and whoever controls the leg. That means that you can politicize the vote count. And that is really unbelievably menacing. Some of these acts, some of these legislative proposals have been introduced deliberately to engage in voter suppression. Whether that will be successful is unclear. There will be legal challenges, of course. And then, of course, resourceful people will find a way to deal with whatever restraints 
and restrictions are, are put in place. But if it has a negativizing effect on the vote by minorities and poor people and people who work for hourly wages, that will have the effect of voter suppression. I think some of this is being proposed by people who actually feel that there were too many irregularities in the last election and maybe the previous one, and they want to clarify all of this. But if it has the effect of voter suppression, it's still a baneful thing in American life. But you know, I see these, to go to your larger question, David, as, as acts of temporary futility. The, the tide of change is coming. Young people are much more in tune with the dynamics of social change than their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And I think this is like Canute trying to hold back the tides of the ocean by commanding them to stop or, or trying to put his finger in a dike. It can't be done. And so we're watching the last gasp of a kind of Pat Buchanan, George Wallace view of the world, which has taken on virulence and enormous energy at the moment by the loudest people in the country. But I don't think that in the long run it can actually stop the dynamics of change. And if any country is open to change, uh, the United States uh, wins the gold medal in that every single time. We need to be reminded to put Jefferson back in the picture. Martin Luther King, when he delivered his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, said, I've come to collect on a promissory note written by Thomas Jefferson. And that was the equality statement in the Declaration. So Jefferson's spirit and Jefferson's principles are the force here. And so that it is 76 that gives us Jeffersonian magic words. And they're the ones that underlie the entire expansion of rights for women, for blacks and others in the society. I wanted to ask both of you, too. This sort of leads me into another subject I wanted to bring up. The obligations of citizens and self-government. Are we being naive to expect that of citizens? Oh, boy, that's a Jeffersonian question. We talked about this months ago when the mask issue was being raised, and I think we could talk about it in the context of vaccines now, too. The term that Jefferson constantly used was self-government. There are a lot of libertarians around who think that means a sovereign self that acts exclusively on the basis of his or her own convictions, independent of what the rest of the society thinks or needs. It, that's not what he meet, meant by it, and he was pretty clear about that. Self-government meant that every person, in Jefferson's very optimistic view, contained what he called a moral sense. You might call it a soul, but they call it, he called it a moral sense. He got the idea in college at William and Mary from reading a, a Scottish philosopher named Thomas Hutchinson. Is it Thomas Hutchinson? I think. And um, Jefferson believed that individuals will do what is best, not just for themselves, but for the collective, for the community. And you don't have to have government force them to do that. You don't have to have mandatory, uh, you don't have to have a draft. They will volunteer. It's an optimistic view that uh, right now looks to be, a, to me, a quite serious question. But that's what he thought, that individuals will internalize the needs of the collective and act accordingly. Yes, but it, of course, depended upon a well-informed, well-educated, and earnest citizenry, and uh, yeah. we haven't always gotten it. You know, and you, I'm reading a new book about the ways in which the far right 
has come to hold the Republican Party hostage and how the Republican Party has essentially surrendered to the far populist right. And if you look at the outlook of, of, the, of the QAnon folks in the far right, um, what you discover is that most of their allegations and arguments are baseless, but you can't convince them. And so this has been a problem from the beginning of time that that you know you can you can be a Jeffersonian and aggrandize the people and speak of them with a capital P and talk about their inherent virtue but the fact is that at any given time some percentage of the people are just idiots they they don't do their work they don't read they don't have a critical thinking skills they're susceptible to wild notions and conspiracy theories and they, uh, they spout before they bother to reflect. And I don't know whether it's 10% or 20% or 60%. Um, that's neither here nor there. But the fact is, this is the case. And that's why people who despair of democracy talk about literacy tests and citizenship tests and other ways to make sure that the people who actually vote have some inkling of what they're actually doing when they vote or contact their legislature. But, of course, that doesn't really fulfill the spirit of democracy. And frankly, as you know, Joe, over history, this is why many political theorists have despaired of democracy. They've said the weak link in, in democracy is the people. It'd be fun if the people were great. The people is the problem. I mean, especially as you say, when, I mean, I was, you know, I've been, for a book that I recently wrote, read a lot of the pamphlet literature, and I remember assigning things like Thomas Paine's Common Sense or uh, John Dickinson's Letters from a Pennsylvania Farmer, which ordinary Americans were reading um, in 1775, 76, and writing in on the newspapers about. These are ordinary Americans, not just the, the prominent founders. If you assign it in, in, uh, to very gifted undergraduates, students that I taught at Mount Holyoke, at Amherst, at Williams, um, they can't read it. Um, it's, uh, or a lot of them can't read it. Um, and I would think that only about 40% of the high school graduates in the United States can pass the civics test required of all immigrants for citizenship. Um, that's a failure of higher education, uh, or of high school and, uh, middle school education. Um, and I think that Jefferson never had to deal with the internet or with Facebook, um, I wonder what he'd think of it, um, but uh, it's it's a source of disinformation that is out there and that is it's like the Wild West. Um, there's no regulate and um, but uh, in in some respects, democracy is the problem, and the founders, Jefferson included in this, didn't think they were creating a democracy. They thought they were creating a republic. A republic has a democratic foundation, but republic is res publica, things of the public. The public is different from the people. The people at any given time, in Jefferson's view even, uh, are capable of being uh, misled. They're swoonish. Um, they're often uninformed. And therefore, we create a government that filters their opinion through layers of refinement in the government that, you know, is the House of Representatives, the Senate, presidency, and the Supreme Court. Um, uh, but uh, the, the level of disinformation, the, 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 what's striking, I'll back to, that 
18th century literacy rate in New England was about 90%, but in the South it was like 60%. Um, and But the people that I was reading could understand complex arguments about freedom and liberty and about government in a way that are, is difficult for some of the most gifted students I've taught in the 21st century. Clay, you you wrote a roadmap on how we can work our way out of this in your book, Repairing Jefferson's America. Yeah, person by person by person. I... Yeah, well, well, why, why don't you uh, be the optimist? We need to take a break, but uh, cheer me up a little, would you? I'm happy to be the optimist. I am an optimist. I think that we have to be, be realistic when we when we talk about the actual American experiment and the project of enlightenment. And the fact is, and this is something that's very hard to have to admit, but much of the best uh, that's happened in American life has happened because the people weren't involved. When the people get involved, they tend to slow things down and often prevent enlightened change. And so the, one of the issues today, David, is that everyone has access to everything and social media have made everyone a publisher. And so people are involved in unprecedented percentages in pretending that they know what's going on. Whereas in the past, things happened and they weren't really in contact with their government. If you look at the environmental legislation of the 1960s and 1970s, the Wilderness Act, the Clean Air Act, the expansion of the national parks, uh, the Clean Water Act, the EPA, and so on, it's hard to believe that any of those things could be passed into law today. And they were passed into law in some part because the people were not actively engaged in complaining about what government was doing uh, across the country and particularly in the American West. And so uh, th th this is an issue we're going to have to fight our way through over the next 20 and 30 and 40 years. But to quickly turn to the other subject, we can't probably fix the country, but we can fix ourselves. If I start with me and become more Jeffersonian, and if Joe, in spite of his love of John Adams, becomes more Jeffersonian, and others do, then we exemplify those values, and, and people see that, and, and we communicate with our friends and loved ones and our, and our colleagues, and we have a, a ripple effect, and that's all we can really do at this point, is tell the truth as we know it, uh, speak with the megaphone that we have, but, uh, but try to exemplify what an enlightened life looks like and hope that that will have a spreading effect in our communities. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. We'll take a short break and I'll recuperate further. <laughs> but we will be back in just a moment to continue this conversation with Clay Jenkinson and Professor Joseph Ellis. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. When we took our break, we were talking about uh, Clay's book, Repairing Jefferson's America, which I think is really important. And I'm so glad that this effort to get it into the hands of legislators around the country has been so successful. But Joe, a couple of times you brought up a new book that you're working on, and I understand you were sending a proof of it to Clay. I have not seen it, but tell us about that book. It's true. Um, I've continued to scribble away and um, in my quasi-retirement here, and I've got a book coming out actually uh, in the middle of uh, September, coming out from W.W. W. Norton. It's called The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. And it's about the 1770s. Historians divvied up the past in all these increments. And I decided that we should talk about the founding, which is pre-revolutionary, revolutionary America, post-revolution, and early republic all at once. I didn't know it, but I was writing it backwards. And I wrote a book called Founding Brothers about the 1790s. And now I'm back at the beginning. And the book, The Cause, is about the 1770s. Like uh, most authors, I sort of think that every book of mine should be entitled Great Expectations, and um, so I'm trying to tamp down my expectations. But um, there is some stuff in there that might work on the Jefferson Hour. Like we've been talking recently about, you know, the failure of the people to respond uh, to uh, sensible policies, and there's a the Jeffersonian position that the people will do the right thing because they will internalize their responsibility. Washington disagreed with that, and he had good reason to, George Washington, that is, because they could have raised an army of over 100,000, given the population in 1775, 6, and 7, and it never got beyond 12,000. And um, and Washington thought that if we had had a draft he just asked for 60,000. We could have ended the war in a year or two, and it wouldn't be prolonged and protracted. And we almost lost in the end. Um, but that the people didn't respond. Um, that is, they were prepared to defend their own local communities and militia, but they were not prepared to volunteer for the Continental Army, and they were not prepared to pay taxes to support the army. In one year, they, they the Continental Congress requested $8 million and they got 300000 The lack of support for the Continental Army is one of the earliest indications that Jeffersonian optimism about the willingness of people to support the collective is probably utopian. But anyway, this is a book that's coming, and uh, if you're out there and you're interested in the American Revolution, it's my attempt to tell that story. We'll have to have a, a future conversation when it's out, and, and Clay and I have had a chance to read it. I look forward to that. Yeah, it's, it's, I hate to have a month go by when Joe hasn't written a new book. <laughs> I'm not that fast, Clay, uh, but uh, but I, I, you know, I'm I I I get up every day, and um, when I sit at my desk and have my cup of coffee, with my dog sitting behind me, I'm really happy trying to make sense out of the late 18th century and. Um, uh, and uh, there's some people in the profession who say Ellis is the historian of dead white males. Well, um, it's the most impressive generation, uh, political generation in American history, and um, uh, Jefferson is one of the obvious 
members of that generation. Let me bring up another book, if I might. We got an email from Craig McKelvey about a book called Fears of a Setting Sun, The Disillusionment of America's Founders, written by Dennis C. Rasmussen and published this year in the boilerplate about the book. It says, as Dennis Rasmussen shows, the founders' pessimism had a variety of sources. Washington lost his faith in America's political system above all because of the rise of partisanship. Hamilton because he felt the federal government was too weak. Adams because he believed that the people lacked civic virtue and Jefferson because of his of sectional divisions laid bare by the spread of slavery. The one major founder who retained his faith in America's constitutional order to the end was James Madison. How do you react to that? Are you familiar with the book? I have not. It must be a recent book because I'm usually pretty up to date, but um, everything he said is is somewhat true. Jefferson retains an optimism, uh, although it's true at the end, uh, the last 10 years or so, he hears the he hears the Niagara Falls in the ahead in, with regard to the Civil War. Adams is a kind of professional pessimist, <laughs> always telling us that we're going to go to hell in a handbasket if we don't get our act together. Um, Hamilton, you know, he dies young. He has the good grace to get killed by Burr so that his papers are, are finished before anybody else's. But he, you know, one of his comments was, democracy is not made for me. All of them have read Tacitus and Thucydides and Cicero, and they're troubled about the way in which an, the American Republic, which we must know is a new kind of thing. There'd never been a nation-sized republic before in, in world history. And, uh, and Aristotle said, and Montesquieu said, he couldn't work. Uh, anything that has that kind of popular base is going to end up self-destructing. The author of the book is featuring one dimension of the founder's thought process. It's correct, but it's part of a larger whole that that uh, somewhat softens its message, I would think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this new book, which I haven't yet read, so I want to be cautious. I think that if that's if you're characterizing it correctly, that he's too kind to Madison and too hard on Jefferson. Jefferson did have the blip of deep pessimism during the Missouri Compromise when he said things I never thought I would die with watching this thing fall apart and it's the beginning right. of sectional. He um, says, he, he says he, I'm so glad I'll be dead because, uh, you know, this, and he's, he says it's the most pessimistic he's ever been in his whole life. But generally speaking, he's the Pollyanna of early American history and Madison was always a little bit more uh, grim. He had a, he said if men were angels, no government would be necessary, which is one of the smartest things ever said. Uh, in the United States, I do think Madison was, is 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 kind of enduring because he, I always think of the seesaw. Whenever he sees the seesaw going up too high, he jumps on the other end, and to balance is his bow ideal, and and so he keeps adjusting and changing his position. Um, but it, it uh, he, I mean, I think also that. Um, Dolly keeps him happy in a way that uh, Jefferson doesn't have anybody that does that. I'm kind of an Adamsite in one sense. I think that Adams was right that human nature does not cleanse itself in the journey across the Atlantic Ocean and that we're going to have to face here the same problems that were faced in Europe. And we have some extra ones. So uh, one of the problems in America is uh, the vast wealth of America. And every one of the founding fathers, Adams, 
Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Washington, they'd all read their classics, and they all believed that luxury, as they called it, was going to be the death of Republican virtue. The second thing is that the Founding Fathers put the Federalist principle of, of a dual sovereign into the system, and it served us well in many respects, but states' rights have become a real stumbling block in some respects to the future of the American Republic, and because of that, um, it, this is a very difficult country to govern, as we see, say, with mask mandates and COVID separation policies that states like Florida and Texas just say, no way, we're not doing it. And individuals in those states take their cues from, I think, a false notion of the founding fathers and liberty. And so we're finding, I think, in the early 21st century that the United States is in many important ways an ungovernable republic. And so Adams may have been right. You know, his view was, before you get too optimistic, just look around a little and take a, examine the way life actually works, even in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Let me move on to another question. This one comes from Martha Barriman. She was helping an adult granddaughter with some deep family history and said she found uh, in American Quaker communities records of executions of loyalists and Tory ancestors Expanding their search into timely histories, we learn much about anti-war loyalists. As cited historians giving percentages as 35% loyalists, 45% patriot Whigs, with over 50% of colonists indifferent. And I've always thought this very fascinating. You know, how much public support was there for separation from Britain and support of a revolution? We've touched on this before. Mm. I've just, in doing the work for the book that we've just mentioned, I've gone over this, and the the numbers are not quite what she says. About 20% of the population is loyalist, and that and there are divisions within that. The, the, only about 5% actually bore arms against the United States. But 500,000 is a lot. And one of the things that happened in 1775-76 is each community created a committee of inspection and security. So people would come to your house and ask you to sign a loyalty oath. And if you didn't, you'd get ostracized. And if after a while you didn't, they would come and threaten to burn your house down. They wouldn't kill you. There were no guillotines or firing squad walls, but people would move, have to move and the ultimate diaspora of loyalists uh, totaled 60,000. 60,000 people left the United States. Of the, that 60,000, 8,000 were African-American slaves who escaped. What the Americans did that was extremely effective and was central to winning the war was they made it impossible for lo- local people to remain indifferent. They politicized the entire interior of America. And you couldn't, you just, there's thousands of people on these committees, over half of them are women, by the way. And they, and therefore you have to take a position. You cannot say, I'm going to sit this out. Um, And, um, and that was one of the reasons why the British could never win the war because they would win battles. But then uh, as one British admiral said, it's like a ship going through the, through the ocean and behind it a wave and flows over whatever they've they've created and as a way of awake she's right that there's a kind of 
classical view of the war as a kind of polite exchange of muskets between two stoic uh, uh, armies and um and the the revolutionary war was was barbaric and most of it was hand to hand combat casualty rates in most battles were 30% if you got hit in the chest with a, a musket ball your chances of dying were about 70% um and more Americans died per capita in the American Revolution than any war in American history, save the Civil War. Um, so it was, it was, it wasn't polite. Clay, she also brings up in her letter William Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's son. Can you talk about him? Well, Franklin uh, had a son who was a Tory and a, really a committed loyalist to Great Britain, and was appalled that his uh, famous father. Uh, had be, had turned and become a, a an American Whig and patriot, and they were so unhappy with each other that they never uh, saw each other again. That they they broke. Um, it was a form of great familial bitterness, uh, and Franklin couldn't forgive his son, and his son couldn't forgive his father. His son's wife wrote Franklin after uh, the son got uh, thrown in prison. They put him in prison in Connecticut. Um, and to get him out or to let her visit him. And Franklin simply never responded. Um, uh, he believed his son had made a choice that was the wrong choice and that he disowned him, basically. But as late as the 1772, 3, and 4, Franklin was still um, a, a citizen of the British Empire, still hoped that that would be worked out. In fact, he spent a lot of time in London trying to work things out was humiliated in something called the cockpit and this david i think knows this this moves me to tears every time i read it it's what your man adams said about franklin in astonishment because of course he couldn't stand franklin but he said you know the merest scullery wench the a footman a a a, a valet de chambre a, a a a street urchin everyone in europe uh, knows the name of Franklin and believes that he has ushered in a new golden age. And it's, I, I haven't done it justice, but... You remember the famous quote, but I think Benjamin Rush, you know, it's a letter to Rush from Jefferson, from Adams, uh, said that truth will never be known. They will, the, the history will say that uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, smoked the earth and uh, up popped uh, George Washington, and those two men conducted all the business of the revolution from beginning to end. Franklin got even with him. He he wrote a letter to the whole Continental Congress about Adams as a negotiator in Paris, saying he is an honest man, sometimes a great one, but in many respects, absolutely out of his mind. That's so wrong of you. You know, I was just I was quoting Adams at his very best, praising the universal uh, way in which uh, Franklin was loved, and then you had to return it with an Adams cheap shot. Well, and he was at a play where. Uh, Adams was in Paris. That he, his son was translating for him, um, John Quincy. And um, at, in the break at the play, they came out carrying uh, images of Franklin because Franklin was such a big hero in France. Um, and um, and Adams was so upset he got up and walked out. He couldn't take adversity. He loved adversity. Um, he, 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 he look. My point is that Franklin is a whole different game. You know, we talk about the founding fathers, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Washington, etc. And then there's Franklin. He's kind of an outlier. He's he's a generation older than the rest. 
He's universally known in this time. Jefferson said that being his successor in France was, quote, a school of humility. Yeah, he said, no one can succeed him. I will merely, um, no, can re no one can replace him. I will only succeed him. Um, uh, Franklin is, in some ways, I think, the wisest of all the prominent founders. He is, as you say, a generation early. He, he's a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards. Um, he's also, as you also indicate, he's a latecomer to the cause. He doesn't come over until 1773, I think. The, the British kept referring to him as the American Prometheus. They thought it was unfair that a guy that was as brilliant and as diplomatically agile as Franklin was representing these, these hooligans and these bumpkins from, from the American colonies because um, he could out-talk and out-think almost anybody else. And um, Fra Franklin's, Franklin's special, um, and he's the equivalent of a Nobel Prize-winning scientist for his day as well. I hate to bring this conversation to a close. I so enjoy listening to the two of you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm quite glad to, to just do that. I, and I thank you again, Joe, for joining us this week. Either of you have any upcoming events you want to, uh, to share with us before we say goodbye? Um, I'm getting ready to go out on a book tour. How, how Zoomish it will be versus in person is still unclear, but I'm getting ready to, to cast my bread upon the water. And Clay, you've got this Roosevelt thing coming up. Uh, the Theodore Roosevelt Annual Symposium at, at Dickinson State University is uh, September 23rd to 6th, and my huge exhibit on Edward S. Curtis and Theodore Roosevelt will be premiering there. On that note, thank you so much for listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour this week. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program through the eyes of Thomas Jefferson.